Good morning, good morning. Man, you guys came ready for worship today. Man, give yourself a hand for the way that you guys engaged this morning. No, I was actually being serious. You can actually give yourself a hand. And um, y'all are like, is he being sarcastic? Um, so we're, we're glad you're here uh, today. We're in a study through the book of Jude, working through kind of verse by verse through this very short but very important book in a series that we're calling Wolves Among Us, Wolves Among Us. Jude, in essence, is sounding an alarm uh, for the church because false teachers, wolves, have crept in unnoticed and they are manipulating and distorting the scriptures and leading people astray. And um, Jude makes this declaration, and he really it's a declaration that we need to heed and hear in our current culture, and he simply says to the church, listen, wolves are among you, therefore the only command that he gives us, the entire book is this, contend for the faith. Uh, the word contend we discovered last week is this idea of fight for the faith, stand for truth. Uh, God has entrusted us his word and the truth of the gospel and that we as believers should live with a grip on truth and not let go. And I think this is important because we are living in a, in a day now when because of the accessibility of books, of podcasts, of various preachers from all over the world, and we literally are now being bombarded with information. And so that makes us more susceptible of being misled by those who would teach falsely. And I think it's important that we understand that wolves don't necessarily have to be in the church house. They can actually just be influencers in culture. Another issue that we're facing is this, is that there's this idea of, of secular worldviews that, that we as the church should bow our knee and embrace the, the beliefs of the world and modify who we are um, to, to, to ex be acceptable to the, to the world. And a lot of churches all over the nation are cratering under this pressure. They're backpedaling on certain doctrinal truths. They're, they're abandoning things that, that we should be holding on to. And we need as a church to protect it. We need to contend, like he says, for the truth. And so what we're going to do this morning is, is that last week we, we, we talked about contending the faith and standing against wolves. And this morning what I want to do is help us spot a wolf. How do we know if there's a wolf in front of us? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to cover a section of scripture that's really the majority of this letter. And I want to do it in two ways. I want us to look at, first of all, the description of wolves, and I want us to see the danger of wolves. And uh, I want us to see a very clear picture. How can we spot a wolf if we see one, and why is it so important? We're, we're, we're entitling the message today, Cry Wolf. Now, what I mean by that is not cry wolf like you might think of the story of the boy who cried wolf. What, I, what I'm talking about is, is it's actually a basketball term. Uh, there is this popular thing that started a few years ago um, in basketball where if you have a, an offensive player in maybe transition and they're dribbling the ball down the court and there's a defender on the blind side coming in trying to steal the ball from behind him, your teammate's responsibility is to cry wolf, wolf, wolf. And that tells the person, hey, there's a, there's a defender approaching and you need to protect the ball. Well, we have been entrusted the gospel of Jesus to protect. And so therefore, we have got to have our eyes up and we've got to be looking for wolves. And when we see a wolf who is coming in, we've got to keep our head up and engage and say, wolf, there's, there's someone who is trying to mislead us. And so this is what we're going to talk about this one. So to grab your Bibles, we're going to, we're going to jump in and really refresh ourselves with last week's sermon by looking at verse four. And then from verse four, we'll begin to unpack this description and danger of wolves. If you're at Jude and you're that verse four and you're ready, say, I'm ready. I'm ready. 
Here's what he says. He says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Now, listen to the picture he paints, a kind of broad brushstroke of wolves. He says this, they're ungodly people. Uh, they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And then listen to the last one, and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So there are three kind of broad brushstroke statements that he says here. He's, first of all, they're ungodly. They're ungodly. The word ungodly here is just the idea of not being like God. They don't walk in obedience to God's design. This is a word that he uses six times in 25 verses. So there's 25 verses to, the, to this letter. And he uses out of those 25 verses, the word ungodly six times. Do you think he's trying to communicate something to us? And then if you, you read the next phrase, here's what you'll discover. He says, they pervert the grace of, of, our, of our God into sensuality. In other words, they, they use God's grace as a license to sin, to justify their sin. Well, I can do this because God's grace is sufficient or God has covered this or I'm free in Christ to do whatever. The other one is, is that they not only do this, they deny our only Lord and master, Jesus Christ. It's, the idea is not that they, they reject Jesus as Lord, but they just don't submit their life to the Lordship of Jesus. This is the, the broad brushstroke picture we get of these wolves. And what I want to do is now walk through the rest of the verses where, where, where Jude is going to do something for us. This is where I want your heads up for a moment. This is a little teaching moment. Today's going to be a lot of teaching, um, but I want us to understand this. So, so Jude is going to do something. He's going to give us then more of a detailed description of what a wolf looks like, what a false teacher looks like, an influencer who would lead you astray looks like. And he's going to do this by giving us three examples then he's going to give us three behavior patterns, and then he's going to give us three illustrations. The example uh, he's going to give us are all Old Testament stories, and the illustration that he uses is all Old Testament illustrations, stories in the, in the Old Testament. And then right in the middle, he's going to show us the behavior. And both the examples and the illustrations help us understand the behavior. If you're with me, say, I'm with you. If you're really with me, say, amen. amen. That sounds much better. All right, look what he says here. Let's look at the description of wolves. Verse 5. He says, now I want to remind you, although you once uh, fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And I'm going to do something, and I promise I won't do it all sermon long, but I got to chase a rabbit for a moment because it hit me, and I, I got to share it with you. So it has nothing to do with the sermon. But um, this week when I was studying this, what jumped out at me at this verse five is when he says, he says, although you once fully knew it, he's gonna remind them of some Old Testament stories. He says this, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. I love this because he is, this is Jude, the half brother of Jesus. And he's describing the Exodus when God delivered and rescued his people out of the bondage of Egypt. Notice the language Jude uses here. He doesn't say, and let me remind you how Moses rescued the people. He doesn't even generically use, use the word God there. He says, I want to remind you that it was Jesus who rescued the people from Egypt. In other words, Jude is reminding us something significant about Jesus, his eternal nature. Jesus always was, right? He is and he always will be. And so when Jude is recording biblical history, he wants to remind us that the entire Old Testament is centering on Jesus. So that Moses, listen, while Moses was the spokesperson, it was Jesus who did the delivering. I think this is important that we understand. It's Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. It's all about Jesus. That's a side note. Let's get back to the sermon, all right? He reminds them of this moment, of this deliverance that God provided. Now, look what he says next, verse six. He says, and the angels 
um, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under the gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Verse seven, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So he, he gives us three examples here of the spirit or the behavior of a wolf. And he does this with these three stories. So first of all, he reminds them about the Exodus and he reminds them about a particular moment in the Exodus. The story, and I'm not gonna go to the Old Testament to see it. Let me just describe it to you. So when God delivered his people by his grace, by the way, by his mercy, provided everything that they needed, by his power and strength, he overthrew Pharaoh. He parted the waters. He provided food for them. They journeyed with him and then they came to the brink of the promised land. God had promised them he was gonna give the land. God had validated this promise in the deliverance that he's already given them and his, his mighty power that was at work in them. And here they are at the edge of the promised land. God, promised land. God commands them, go and conquer the land. And what do they do? They disobey. And remember the story. They, they sent 12 spies into uh, this promised land to check it out before they go and storm it. Now, do y'all remember at the eight o'clock and the 9.30 was so disappointing. I just got to tell you that. Um, I hope they don't watch the 11 o'clock um, because I, I reminded them of this story. Do y'all know the song? Like 12 men went to spy on Canaan. Y'all know that song? Okay, so some of y'all know it. Thank you, Jesus, for people who were saved in this room. He says, 12 men went to spy on Canaan. This is the song. 10 were bad and two were good. We got some serious BBSers here. <laughs> Literally nobody in the eight o'clock and nobody in the 930 knew it. And then the song says, what do you think they saw in Canaan? 10 were bad and two were good. Some saw giants big and strong. Some saw grapes, big clusters long, but some saw God was in it all. 10 were bad and two were good. This is, makes me so happy. <laughs> so here's the story. They go in, 10 of the spies said, we can't do it. We're not gonna do it. They don't believe in God. They're not gonna obey his commands. They don't believe that he can conquer and, and, and defeat the enemy to Joshua and Caleb said, let's go get the land. And here's the consequence of their disobedience because of their lack of faith. They wandered for 40 years and an entire generation went to their grave because of this disobedience and rebellion. The second illustration that he gives is that of an angelic Illustration. The Old Testament tells us, if you ever wondered, where, does Satan, where did Satan come from and where is the demonic forces? Where do they come from that we, we see in the scriptures and we know exist among us? Well, the, the angels of heaven were created to, to worship God and to serve God. Um, but the, the Bible tells us, and this is what Jude is going to remind us of, that there was a great rebellion in heaven. The Old Testament tells us about it, that, that Satan uh, led a revolt and, and tried to overthrow God in heaven. And so the Satan and his, his angels that followed him were then cast out. And Jude reminds us here that this rebellion now has caused them to be the recipients of eternal damnation, eternal condemnation forever, kept in chains for eternity. So again, he's reminding us of this great revolt, this, this rebellious, we're not gonna submit to God's authority. We're gonna do what we wanna do. We wanna define who we are and what we are created for. And because of that, they suffer. And then the last one he gives is that of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Now, we know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. They lived in, in severe and serious sexual immorality. In essence, here's what they said. We don't care what God's created order is. We don't care what nature has revealed about God's way of life. We want to choose for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. And we're gonna, we don't care how many warnings we get. We're not changing course. We're going to do life our way. And because of that, destruction came. So what you find in this example is that, that Jude is trying to help us understand this is the, the posture of wolves. This is the disposition of a wolf. This is the attitude and spirit. They reject God's authority and they disobey his word and design for life. And here's something you got to note. Listen, in all three of these examples, destruction was what resulted from it. It didn't go well for them. And he's wanting us to see that this is the type of person a wolf is. It's like the Israelites who disobeyed because they wouldn't believe. It's like the angels who refused to submit to God's authority. It is Sodom and Gomorrah who decided they want to choose for their own life what is right and wrong. This is how a wolf lives. And look what he goes on to say. So look at verse eight. He's going to make the connection. He says, yet in like manner, that's important because he's saying just like that, just like Israel and the angels and Sodom and Gomorrah, they follow the same pattern. He says, yet in like manner, these people, referring to wolves and false teachers, also, now listen to this phrase, relying on their dreams. Now, pause here just for a moment. Let me explain that to you. When he says relying on their dreams, he's talking about special visions or revelations that these false teachers are claiming to have. In other words, they, he's referring to a pseudo-spirituality that they are boasting in, we have spiritual insights that you don't have. We have special revelation. God speaks to me different than he speaks to you. When I look at the scriptures, God shows me the real secrets and mysteries of his word. He really doesn't show that to you. So it's this person who has this, this false sense of spiritual maturity that, that really thinks that they have the key to all of the deeper insights of life and, and what's crazy about it is that their insights into the scripture actually contradict the scripture itself. So it's that person that claims that, man, God reveals things to me that he doesn't reveal to other people. And, and, and if you look in our culture today, there's a real hunger for those type of people. Pastors who say that they have a special revelation or new word from the Lord that he's not given anyone else. They really can't get it from the scriptures itself. Pseudo-spirituality, a claim to have special insights that no one else has. Listen, by the way, when you start hearing people talk like that, that's a, that's a, that's a, a flare that's being shot up saying a wolf might be in your, in your path. Here's what he does. Here's what he says. He says, so because this is what they're doing, he says, in like manner, these people also relying on their own insights and dreams, here's the result. Now we're gonna get to the three behaviors. Look what he says. When you live like this, when you rely on your own spirituality and your own dreams and your own interpretation, here's what happens. Number one, you defile the flesh. Number two, they reject authority. And number three, they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, I want you to lean into this for a minute. These three behaviors is really where we begin to see a very clear picture of how to spot a wolf. Three behaviors that we're gonna unpack here that help us understand how to spot excuse me, a wolf. And here's what they, I want you to write this down. Three, three, three phrases I want to give you that paints the picture for us. Number one, write this down if you're taking notes. They are seekers of pleasure. They are seekers of pleasure. Look what he says here. He says, they defile the flesh. In other words, these are people who live by the impulses and desires of the flesh. 
This could be immoral behavior that's both public or private, or it could be just a life that is lived with, for, in pursuit of our own comforts and, and, and preferences and convenience. So it could be like open immorality or private immorality, but it also could be not necessarily immorality. It could be just someone who they live for the impulse. They just want to, to, to have the comforts of life, live on their own terms, whatever makes them happy, whatever they want to do, they do. Whatever they don't want to do, they don't do. And they manipulate the scriptures to justify it. It's seekers of pleasure. They just want to make life all about them. This is the picture. He, he describes this in verse four as ungodly. Ungodly. And then again, and when you jump into verse number uh, 14 and 15, four times he's going to call this type of life ungodly. It is not in line with what God has revealed uh, for them. In verse 16, he really gets to the heart of the issue. Look what he says in verse 16. This is the, the picture he's painting, following their own sinful desires. Now, what's the point? The point is this, whatever they feel will bring them pleasure, they do. This could be a secret life of unrepentant sin, or like I mentioned before, it could be just considering your wants and desires above everything, including God's word. And here's the crazy part about this. Both of those, both the immoral expression and just the, 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 the lack of submission to God's greater commands, just feeding off the flesh. Here's what's crazy about it. Wolves will often use scripture to justify their behavior. It's what Paul was dealing with in Romans chapter six. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, can we just continue to live a life of, of sin and do our own thing just so that grace is here and it can abound? He says, no, no, no. How can you, if you're dead to sin, continue to live in it? Or they'll say things like this. Look, man, God's grace is sufficient. I don't have to, 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 to live generously. I'm not, you're not saved by work, so why would I do that? You don't have to live on, on mission for God all the time. You can make life about you. They don't take the mission of God seriously. They don't take the commands of God seriously. They're just, life is all about me, and here is the banner. We are free in Christ. We don't have to do. And it's a false application of what grace is. And this is, this is serious business. And here's why they do this. Verse 19 helps us understand why the person lives according to the flesh. Verse 19 says this, they are devoid of the Spirit. It's capital S. They are devoid of the Spirit. And the, the, what, what Jude's point is this, Jude's point is the reason they live off the impulses of the flesh is because they lack the power of the Holy Spirit in their life. They're not saved. They've never been born again. And because of their being devoid of the Spirit, there is no power. You realize today the only power we have over the flesh is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. But, but, a, but a wolf doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Therefore, they are directed by the flesh and the flesh alone. They do what they want to do when they want to do it. Paul describes this person in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He's, he's talking about this, this type of deceiver. And here's what he describes them as. He says, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And then he says, avoid such person. Paul is simply saying, he says, man, on the outside, this is why they, they on the outside, they, they look like a sheep. They talk like a sheep. They even have some of the beliefs of a sheep. But if you dial into their life, there is a form, an exterior, you know, kind of performance that makes them look godly. But when you look at the essence of their life and what it is they live for, you'll recognize that while they have a form of godliness, the power of God is not in their life. 
And he says, avoid them. Why? Because they're dangerous. It's what Jesus describes whitewashed tombs. It's, it looks pretty on the outside, but the inside is full of dead men's bones. And this is why you think about this. Go back a couple of weeks ago in Matthew chapter seven, when we were talking about fruit, inspecting fruit, Jesus talks about the wolf. And he says, they'll come to you looking like sheep. So how do you know if it's a sheep or a wolf? You look at, what do you say? You look at their fruit. You look at the life. What's, what's their life saying? Not what their mouth is saying. What's their life saying? And, and, a, and a wolf will, be a, will tell on themselves when you look at their life, it is a self-consumed, self-absorbed, pleasure-seeking, me-centric life. And you know them by their fruits. You see, it's not about what they say, it's about what they do that really matters. I illustrate like this. I love, to like to, we, we plant a lot of shrubs and stuff at our house. We love every year to kind of do some gardening, plant flowers and things. And so, but um, one of the things that I've been wanting to do is plant some fruit trees. Brad is like a fruit tree nerd and he's been teaching me all kinds of stuff about them. But, but I can't tell when I go and see the, the nursery and see the little uh, fruit trees, if, you just, if I just walk up, I couldn't tell you an apple tree from an orange tree. Some of you are probably amazing at it. I can't do it. So I'm the guy that's in there looking for the labels. And, uh, and so just imagine if I went and bought, I found the label, it had apple tree on it and I bought the apple tree and I'm so fired up and I plant it and I asked Brad to come over and uh, I was like, Brad, you gotta come and eat some of my apples and they've been growing all year and they're amazing. They're, they're orange, it's amazing. And you peel this cover off of them and it's like, they're really juicy on the inside. When Brad shows up, he's gonna look at me and go, you're a moron, that's an orange tree. Now, what if I argue with him and said, no, 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 the label says apple tree. He's gonna go, no, 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 the fruit says orange tree. <laughs> and his point is gonna be what? It doesn't matter what it's labeled. What matters is what fruit is being produced from it. When you look at the life of a wolf, there's a facade of spirituality, but the truth is the root of their life is that driven toward the flesh and self. And that is the fruit that is the tell that exposes who they really are. Here's number two. Um, write this down. They are self-governed, self-governed. Look what he says here in verse eight. They reject authority. Uh, this is the description of, of, a, of a person who has a spirit of rebellion. Uh, the word reject here in the original language is a word that literally means destroying something that's been established. The word authority there is, the, is, the, is a word that is a form of the word where we get the word curios or Lord. It's also often used to referring to God or to Jesus. And I think what he's saying is, is that these, these wolves, these false teachers, they reject a spiritual authority. Both Jesus, his word, and other spiritual leaders in their life. They, they have a spirit of rebellion. They reject, they tear down, establish spiritual leadership in their life. And if you think about the illustrations, look at the, the, the examples rather that he gave of Israel, of the angels, and of, and of Sodom and Gomorrah. What is the root issue of all of that? It's rebellion, right? We're gonna do what we wanna do. We're not gonna obey. We wanna be in charge as angelic beings. We wanna live life on our terms. There was this sense of rejecting authority that was over their life. And this is one of the ways that you can tell a wolf when you're around one, they're self-governing. You see, wolves report to no one. God's word is not ultimate in their life. Spiritual leaders are often scrutinized and undermined by them. They are, they are accountable to no one. The, the spirit of, of spiritual rebellion is a common way of their life. This is a big deal. So here's the thing. If you have a person in your life 
who's always the exception of why they don't have to obey the commands of God. There's all, they're always the exception to the rule. It doesn't apply to me because X. I don't have to because of this. They're always the exception. When you're when you around someone and they always wanna undermine and scoff at spiritual leaders and attempt to discredit spiritual authority. Always trying to undermine leadership. You have a, t- a potential wolf on your hands. Now just think about it for a moment. Why would they do this? Why is there such a, a, a rebellion against spiritual authority and, and leadership and, and, the, and this undermining it's because if you are a wolf and you're wanting to mislead people away from truth, then what do you have to do? You have to undermine those that God has entrusted to be the guardians of truth. And so you manipulate and you mislead. And he describes it here. Look what he says here in verse number nine. No, I'm sorry, verse number 16. He says they're grumblers, they're malcontents. They're always complaining about stuff. They're never content. They follow their own sinful desires. Listen, they're in loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. It's just this manipulative rejection, undermining of spiritual leadership. Because listen, here's the thing. Here's, here's a summary statement you can, you can write in your notes. Wolves, listen, they love to be in authority, but never under authority. They love to be in authority, but never under authority. And by the way, can I help you? This is why we are elder led at our church. This is why, because listen, the, the authority of being an overseer of truth, a guardian, the primary guardian of truth as a pastor and a shepherd should never be done by a singular person. There should be faithful, appointed leaders that that God has appointed, church has appointed to oversee and guard truth. And it should never be one person. Why? You know what? I'm sinful. And there may be a day where God calls me home or calls me away from here. There's another pastor here and you might hire a wolf and not know it. But we have elders so that, man, if there's ever something in me that begins to go astray, I need spiritual authority in my life. Every person needs spiritual authority in their life. And so I've got faithful men who will call me out, who will challenge me, who are there to guard doctrine and I'm working with them in the process. But we need the plurality because there always needs to be checks and balances and guards of spiritual authority. Otherwise, a wolf can run the control of the church and tear it apart. This is why deacons, even though they're not Uh, the positions are not authoritative in the governance. They are men of wisdom who have the responsibility of not only serving, be sounding boards for the elders so that if we ever begin to lead in a way that misleads, they can represent the body and bring us back. But a wolf, what they do is they wanna come in and they wanna undermine the elders. They wanna undermine the leadership. They wanna try to manipulate behind the scenes. Why? Because they they don't want spiritual authority for their life and they wanna manipulate it so they can control others in their life. Here's number three. Number three, they are spiritually arrogant. They are spiritually arrogant. Now this next phrase is very confusing and I'm gonna try to very simply unpack this for us. Uh, They blaspheme the glorious ones. They blaspheme the glorious ones. Uh, Simply put, the glorious ones here is a reference to angelic beings, to the angels, right? The glorious ones, that's what he's referring to here. And the word angel literally means to be a messenger. And the point that Jude is making is this, is that um, the angels were oftentimes in scripture 
appointed by God to be the bearers of his message. And what, what he's referring to here is that the wolf will blaspheme against God's authoritative messengers who are bearing his message. And so there's this sense of spiritual arrogance to where, like, I know better than they do. I have more spiritual insight than they have. And so they, they blaspheme. The idea of blaspheme is they, they revile against it. They scoff at it. They undermine it. And because then here's why they do this. They do this because there is this sense of arrogance where they think they have arrived to a spiritual place that is above the spiritual authority and the messengers that God has placed in their lives. Therefore, there is this sense of blasphemy against the messenger that God has appointed. And this is a dangerous place to be. He uses an illustration here. I think it's important to understand he, he, when he's talking about they blaspheme the glorious ones, he, he shows how foolish this is. Look what he says in verse nine. He says, but when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now that seems pretty confusing. Let me explain this to you. This, what, he, what Judah's quoting here, eyes right here just for a second. He is quoting from non-biblical literature, extra biblical literature. I believe that Jude's primary audience was Jewish. The reason I believe that is, is because all of his illustrations and examples are Old Testament stories that everyone would have been familiar with. And he also, on two different occasions, is gonna to refer to um, uh, historical Jewish literature that most of his audience would have known. So he's using uh, uh, historical writings as illustrations. And here's what he's, somewhere there's writings that talk about this battle that happened when Moses died, that Satan wanted the body of Moses and that God dispatched the archangel Michael to, to protect the, 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 the body of Moses and Satan and him went at it. And his point in this, again, I don't want to get into whether it's true or not true. Do we accept it? Not accept it. I don't think that's the point Judah's making. Judah's using an illustration to say this, is that even Michael in that moment, even though he was in conflict with Satan, who was a fallen angel, did not take the position of authority and rebuke Satan in his own name. Michael knew his role. He wasn't so spiritually arrogant that he took a posture that only God should be the one taking. And he says, but these wolves, he says, they're too ignorant for this. They don't understand their role. They don't stay in their lane. Look what he goes on to say. He applies this now. He says, but these people, talking about the, the wolves, these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that, that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. In other words, they think they know something, but they really don't know something, but they act instinctively of what they think they know, even though they really don't know it. You want me to say that again? I'm not going to, because I can't remember. Let me summarize it like this. Listen to this. Write this down if you're taking notes. Spiritual arrogance flows from spiritual ignorance. Spiritual arrogance flows from spiritual ignorance. It is to presume to know something that you don't really know and act as if you do know. And he says, and they do this like instinctive animals that, 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 that just act impulsively to their own destruction. Let me give you the illustration for this. I think the middle picture I get is, how many of you have ever seen a dog maybe in your neighborhood or on, on one of the major highways and uh, they think they're the guardian of the highway. And so every car that comes by, they're just yapping at the car. They're chasing the truck. Like they're gonna catch the truck. You know what I'm talking about? And they do this because instinctively, they don't quite understand that they're not gonna catch the truck. Eventually, the truck's gonna catch them, right? 
And so what do they do? Day after day, it's yap, yap, yap. They chase, try to get the truck, chasing it instinctively. They just, they think that they can capture the truck until the day the truck captures them. And then you don't see it anymore because he's laying on the side of the road, gone, right? And this is the picture. And these, these false teachers, these wolves, they, they walk in this spiritual arrogance to their own destruction. They, 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 they're in their arrogance. They think they're somebody that they're not. And it's gonna lead, what we're gonna see in a minute, to complete annihilation, to, to destruction. It's a serious issue. We've got to guard ourselves from being influenced by this type of person. Now, here's what he's going to do now. So we see the three examples that he gave. Everybody nod your head. We see the three behaviors. And now he's going to come back behind those behaviors with three illustrations. Three illustrations to help us see a fuller picture of it with three different stories. Look what he says in verse number 11. He says, woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain, that's number one, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, that's number two, and they perished in Korah's rebellion, that's number three. So he summarizes their behavior with three very brief statements about stories everyone would have been familiar with. Cain, Cain is the son of Adam and Eve, right? So what does Cain do? Cain decides to offer a, God, a sacrifice to God that was different or lesser than the sacrifice that God prescribed for him to offer. I'm gonna bring God the sacrifice that I wanna bring him. I don't care what he said. And then when, because of Abel's obedience, he honored the Lord, God approved of it, he got angry and murdered him. So that's the first one. The second one is that of, of Balaam. Balaam was a prophet of God that was for hire. So the enemies of God's people approached Balaam and basically bribed him to prophesy against God's people. He was a prophet of God to prophesy for God's people. Enemy says, we'll pay you to prophesy against God's people. So he led God's people intentionally into a rebellion so that he could prophesy against him. Luckily, God intervened through a donkey speaking to him. But what's the point? Balaam being self-centered, self-focused decides what I want is to get paid for this. And so what does he do? He rebels against God's appointed position for personal gain. And what is the last one? Korah. Korah is the cousin of Moses who led a coup to overthrow Moses as they wandered through the wilderness. He did not received the position of authority that he wanted. And so what did he do? He went and undermined the spiritual leadership that God had placed upon Moses, devised a plan, got a group of people against Moses and tried to lead a revolt. Ultimately, God destroyed him. Now, just think about what he's saying here. L listen to this. The, the, the illustrations uh, are making this point. He says, these false teachers are seekers of pleasure like Balaam. They are self-governed like Korah. They are spiritually arrogant like Cain. And what's the one common thread from all of them? They all perished. Cain was banished from the garden only to wander. Korah and, 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 and Balaam, they, they, they were taken care of by God. And this is the spirit and the mindset of a wolf. And listen to me, when you see this, you need to cry wolf. There needs to be a recognition. Why? And here's the second point of this, part of this, because wolves are dangerous. Wolves are dangerous. So you see the description, you gotta see the danger. I want you to write down a couple of things very quickly here. I think this is important. Now you, you, and please, please listen, write this down because you're gonna leave this place. You're gonna wonder, okay, what does he say about the danger? Why is this so important for us? I want you to see this. What he's gonna do in the next few verses, he is gonna give us 
a handful of natural phenomenons. And he's gonna use those as, as, as examples of the type of destruction that wolves will bring into your life and congregation, into the church. Here's the first one, write this down. Why are they dangerous? First of all, they are destructive. They're destructive. Look what he says here. First natural phenomenon is in verse 12. He says, they are hidden reefs at your love feast. They, they, are, they, they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. Now, he first of all says they're like hidden reefs. Now, why is that important? So if you're in a body of water and you're moving across the lake in a boat or, in, or across the sea in a, in a ship, if everything on the surface looks okay, but there is a hidden reef underneath, that reef being, being something that could tear a boat apart, what's gonna happen? It's gonna puncture it, rip it apart. Water's gonna fill it and it's gonna sink. It's gonna destroy it. And here's what he's saying. He says, these, these wolves are destructive. They're like hidden reefs, but they're right there in your midst. Everything on the surface looks great, but if you're not careful, they're gonna destroy the church. And he says, they're at your love feast. The love feast would be, the only thing I can, this is Baptist language. I would say a weekly potluck. <laughs> Jeff, that's probably way off, I'm, I'm sure. It's, so they would come together and they would have an agape meal. They would, they would get together as a church and they would have dinner on the grounds and they would fellowship with one another and then they would observe the Lord's Supper. And what happens in the, in the New Testament, Paul addresses this, is that these love feasts, these agape meals turned into a drunken orgy. Because you have all of these false teachers and wolves manipulating the grace of God and leading people into sin on the service. Hey, we're all loving each other. The grace of God free in Christ. And the next thing they're, they're being led into sinful behaviors and lifestyles. And he's saying, listen, you've got people among you, wolves who are sitting at the table of fellowship where you're actually observing the Lord's Supper together and they're a hidden reef. And before too long, the church is going to strike it and the church is going to be destroyed. This is a dangerous thing. Here's number two. They are deceitful. They are deceitful. Look what he says. There's two analogies he gives here. He says, they're waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. Now, he, I love these. We can get this in East Texas. He says, waterless clouds with the promise of rain, but not delivering the rain it promises, right? Y'all know what's gonna happen in August, right? All these people complaining about all the rain in May and the, 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 what June showers we had. What's gonna happen in August is we're gonna hit a drought. We're gonna have a dry spell and we're gonna need some rain. And inevitably this is gonna happen once or twice. You mark my word on this. I am not a wolf. I'm not prophesying that just so you know. What's gonna happen though is this, those clouds are gonna roll in and thunder and lightning. It's gonna roll in. We're gonna be like, yes, it's coming. Rain's coming. You're gonna be on the phone. Like rain's here taking pictures of it. And what's gonna happen is quickly as they blew in, they're gonna blow out and not drop a single drop of rain. And that's what he's describing. He says, it's like a tree that you're waiting for harvest and you've been longing for the fruit that you can harvest from this tree. And you're waiting and waiting and waiting only to discover when you get to harvest it that the tree was actually dead and didn't produce fruit. And, and what he's teaching us here is this, is that there is a deception that these false teachers are deceitful. They, they promise spiritual insights. They promise a better life. They promise deeper knowledge. They promise more freedom to experience all that God has for you. And they're leading you down a path of higher spirituality. And here's the problem. They're waterless clouds. They're fruitless trees. 
You believe you're going to be more satisfied in Christ and more full in him when you find yourself as more thirsty and more hungry because they made a promise that they couldn't deliver on. This is what false teachers do. Here's number three. They are destructive. They are uh, disruptive, rather. They are disruptive. Verse 13. He says, wild waves of the sea casting up foam of their own shame. Say, what in the world is he talking about there? I don't know. No, I, I'm, I think I know. All right, I'm just teasing. So I think what he's describing here, this is based on a couple of people I've read on this. They're, they're disruptive. So think about maybe being at the beach and the, the shore's clean, um, or if you're in Galveston, fairly clean. Um, <laughs> if you laugh, you've been to Galveston. <laughs> and what happens? The storm rolls in. I mean, you're enjoying the, watching the, the waves come in. They're foaming. They're crashing. They're on the shore, and it's great. But when the storm passes by and the waters subside, what's left on the beach? Seaweed and dead wood, and it Galveston, all kinds of trash, right? And this is what he's saying. There's a wake of shame. There's a wake of destruction. There's, a, there's this disruption that they create. They, they come in and, and you think, okay, this is it. This is what, man, this is the truth we've been looking for. This is the path we want to follow. And what, what happens in the end, in the body of Christ and in individuals is the mission of God is disrupted. Their walk with Christ is, is disrupted. The things that God was doing is disrupted. And there's just all of this debris that's, that's the aftermath of what this false teacher, this wolf has done in their life. I, I listen, I know this full well. I, I was uh, raised in church and there was a season we had a pastor that I loved dearly. I spent a lot of time at his, at his house. Uh, his, his son was one of my best friends, stayed a couple of nights a week at their house. I mean, this dude could take God's word and make it come alive. Only to our shock that he was a wolf who for years had been lying to the church, manipulating ungodly life behind the scenes, embezzling hundreds, thousands of dollars from the church, occupying the property, trying to sell it back. He was a con artist who had been manipulating church after church after church. And for years we followed this guy. And listen, let me tell you, that was painful. There are people today that are no longer in church because of that. There are families that have fallen apart because of the manipulation that he brought within the homes trying to gain power and control. When God called me to ministry, you know my knee-jerk reaction to God was, I'll do anything you want me to do, but I'm never working at a church. And you know the reason? It's because I didn't want to be a part of that anymore. I mean, there's so much debris that that event left in my heart and people that were a part of that church to this day is disruptive in spiritual progress. Wolves are dangerous. Now here's the last one is this. This is the kind of the ultimate and final danger. They are destroyed. They are destroyed. Verse 13, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Now the last natural phenomenon he is gonna show us is that of a shooting star. What is a shooting star? It's this, this star that's, 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 that's bursting through the sky. We see it. It's brilliant. It's bright. It's shining through the night. And all of a sudden, that rhymed and it didn't mean to. And, it's, it's, it's go, and all of a sudden, it just disappears into utter darkness forever, right? That's what he's talking about. 
These, these wolves come in and man, you're like, oh my gosh, you're mesmerized. You know, they look like they have the light of the gospel in them, but here's the reality. It's just a flash of a moment and the destiny of that wolf is eternal darkness and, darkness and condemnation. They're destroyed. When you get into the latter verses of this is that God takes this seriously. If you look at the six, the, the three illustrations and the three examples that he gives, What's the one common link in all of those? All of them rebelled and all of them were destroyed. And I know for some of you, you may think, okay, that's kind of harsh. Like, like God's just gonna destroy these people? Yes, if they're not repentant, he will. But it is not harsh, it's actually loving. And let me tell you why it's loving, because in this book right here, God has revealed himself. The greatest thing we could ever know in all of our life is God himself. God has revealed himself from Genesis to Revelation and all of it points to the ultimate revelation of himself in the person of Jesus. And in this book, God reveals his plan for life and his plan for humanity and the plan for the flourishment of society. And in this, he shows us the sin that we have that we need reconciled. And then he shows us that he sent Christ to die for us and, and paid the price for our sin, that he was placed in the tomb, he's resurrected, that now in him we can have new life and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit so that now we can experience the abundant life he has for us. And ultimately, this book shows us how forever we can enjoy him. And listen, this is all because God loves us. He revealed these things to us. And here's what this means, is that because God loves us, he would destroy anyone who would get in the way of that. It's not harsh. God would bring condemnation. It is love for you and me because he doesn't want anyone to twist, to taint, to hurt, or harm this great gift that he has given us. So what do you do with this? Here's the first one. You embrace it. Accept Christ. If you, listen, you can't walk in a truth that you have not embraced. So if you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're, you're devoid of the Spirit and you need new life. You need to trust Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and let God miraculously give you new life. The truth of the scripture being embraced in the person of Jesus. You need to embrace him. If you've embraced him, here's number two. You need to walk in the truth. Walk in it. Immerse yourself into the gospel. And then number three, what do we do? We protect it. How do we protect it? We cry wolf. We make sure that we have our eyes up and we're aware of those who might mislead and manipulate and harm the message that he's entrusted to us. So here's what we're gonna do. Let me get you to bow your heads. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pray over us. And Pastor Zeke and the team, are gonna come lead us through a song. And here's what I want you to do. During this time of reflection, Pastor Zeke is gonna lead us in singing a song that really communicates clearly the, clearly the fundamental message of God's truth that's been revealed. It helps us understand the story of the gospel and what it is that we hold so precious that has been revealed to us in God's word. And so for some of you this morning, you've never embraced God's truth. You've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And today you need to. There's gonna be encouragers here that would, would love to pray with you and help you come to a place of receiving Christ into your life and being made new. There are others of you, you're living in sin. You're not walking in God's truth. You're letting the enemy lead you down paths. You know Christ, but you are walking in some areas of your life that you need to repent of. 
He says, my sheep hear my voice and they respond when I call them. So some of you, you, you need to listen to the voice of Jesus that says, hey, repent of that. Others of you, you need to pray for people in your life that you know are being misled by wolves who have strayed away and asked God to intervene. So that's what we're gonna do in the next few months. We're gonna think about through this song, the gospel of Jesus. And if you need to embrace it, embrace it. If you need to surrender so you can walk in it and, and repent, do that. If you need to pray for those Father, I love you and I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for your truth. Help us, God, be a people who walk in truth, who hold on to this dear message that you've given us, God, that we would know you and walk with you and abide in your truth. Lord, we love you, but it's only because you first loved us. Speak now. In Jesus' name, God's people said.